this conversation always goes in places that I, I never expect. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do in this month of June and spending a lot of time thinking about the protests that still are going on. And they are still going on. If you're hearing this and you've forgotten about what's been happening out there on the streets of major cities, small towns, everywhere in the country, or even worse, if you're following on certain right-wing propaganda sites and news channels, and they're showing the same violent footage from like May 28th or something, as as I know that uh, is happening on Fox, for example, almost every single night, you're getting the wrong picture. You're getting a something that's the lack of hope. And I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, and we haven't talked as, as much about the moment that we're in and the need for us to feel and act and decide what this future is going to be. Because it's very much like a, a birth that we're in the middle of right now. It's painful. It's it's more difficult <laughs> for, for the female half of it <laughs> by a long shot. And it's also like a birth in, in one other way, is that at the end of it, we all get to decide what this is and who this is and who we are. To that end, I wanted to think about the fathers in my life and the fathers uh, that I now uh, am among, because as you know, my son, and, and we, we talk about him on this podcast as Pistachio Joe, my son is uh, four and a half months old as I'm having this conversation with you. And I wanted to bring in someone who could talk about the unique perspective of fatherhood, but also how that wraps into everything else that we are trying so hard to give a damn about right now. And I can think of no one better than someone who's worked a lot on gender and uh, and justice in his career. So I want to bring in a good friend of mine, Sebastian Milano, who is the founder of a website that I will point you to, Defying Gender Roles. I, I, I have loved it since he started working on this and started posting stuff, and I've enjoyed that. And also a senior advisor on gender for Oxfam America in Boston, uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for spending some time with me at the table. Thank you, Jared. I really appreciate having this chance to talk to you and your audience, and it is very nice to hear you. It is. It's. It, you know. It's in this moment where we're just dying to reach out and touch. You know, anybody else in our lives. I was looking at something that has been posted. Uh, actually, it was something you originally linked on the website uh, two years ago when your son was born and then you kind of re-upped it with the moment that we're in right now and said, how do we look at fatherhood and, and this, this challenge that we're rising to. And so as, as much as I love the opportunity to talk about this in a professional way, kind of with the detachment of the reporter notebook and kind of looking at it, I, I, I reject that view from nowhere. And my worldview has changed immensely since the birth of my son. And I know that that's how you feel as well. So tell me, for, I'm going to link the, the piece for people because I think people should read it. But give me a kind of a, a, a brief overview of your work on gender and justice and, and, and what you are caring about and working about right now. And then let's get started and talk about being dads, because I want to separate that. And I want people to understand why you're credentialed to do, to have this to, beyond just being my friend, who's also a dad. So uh, the first thing I, I, I want to say is that there is nothing about working on, on these spaces of gender and justice that is separated, that separates political from personal. 
And this is something that, that I have as a mantra, thanks to the feminists in my life and all the people that have come behind me that allow me to do this work, is that the political is, is the personal. So when we talk about fatherhood and professionalism and trying to separate those things, it's like, no, it's not going to happen. We might think it might happen, but it doesn't happen. And in my work as a, as a gender advisor, and I am a, a cisgender, heterosexual, um, men-identified person from, from South America, from Colombia, has been living in the U.S. for the past 10 years. And I've been reflecting a lot about power, about the way in which we shape the idea of what it means to be a man. And, and a, a huge component of, of that is linked to fatherhood. Research shows that around 80% of men in the world at, in their life will be fathers. So this is an entry point for a substantial change in our lives. So when we were in the process to welcome Rafael, our son, uh, two years ago, I sat down and tried to put on paper some of the reflections of how a feminist approach to becoming a, a parent would look like as, as a man. And it, that brought me into understanding that even from the moment in which I was trying to prepare myself to bring this new life into the world and be the kind of father I wanted to be, I realized that all the resources or the vast majority of them catered to men are very traditional. You provide, yes. you lead, you uh, put together the IKEA table for what, and I'm like, no, I, I need to understand more about <laughs> What are the dimensions and the baggage that I'm bringing from a, a traditional role of being a man that is not in touch with his feelings to my fatherhood? So that was the intention is what is the kind of piece of reflection, introspection that I want other people to see? Because that's what I'm seeking for, right? So in some ways, my writing is a way to create the things in the world that I'm not seeing and hoping that it resonates with somebody else. Um so that was very powerful because it allowed me to make sense of what I was going through. And then in the midst of, of this pandemic, I've been one of those people that are so privileged uh, that I have been able to keep working and stay at home. And I've been downsizing the amount of work I do. And I've been taking care of Rafi for two days a week for the past three months. And making sense of all of this that is happening, how tired I am in revisiting that piece because i think that more than ever as, as you yeah. were saying at the beginning this is a moment in which we are rethinking everything and in that rethinking uh i think that there is a role a huge role for men to play um and in this case i use fatherhood as an entry point because i'm going through this and sometimes i don't know what i'm doing but i'm doing it anyways so uh, the idea <laughs> of this piece is to reflect on basically three things that i, I felt that were important in that introspection um, one is about the patriarchal voice, and that's basically the way in which each of us has been raised. And when we have children, how we think we're very progressive or we think that we have an understanding on issues. And then all the things that we were told when we were little emerge without filter. And then we're, we see ourselves acting. I see myself acting or saying words or taking attitudes that I didn't know that were inside me. So... That's, that's one of the elements. The other one is the, the ability to be present. We were talking about how time goes by, but when, you know, when that kid is not sleeping, you don't think this, that's going to end. And it does end. And, and the, the 
cute elements of children asking you to repeat motions of sounds or readings or games, that ends too. And when they're sick, that ends too. And when they're healthy, that ends too. And it's, it's the ability to remain present, especially people like us that are driven professionally and that have a phone that is ringing, that is uh, something yeah. beeping all the time and is, is the mental space that that takes and how much it affects them. And, and the final thing is the urgency of care, right? We've been thinking that care and caring for others is something that is, is, it has been linked to, to women and feminized. So um, we're seeing that um, care provision should land on the, on the hands and shoulders of women. And that's absolutely wrong. There's, there's nothing more profound and human than caring. Uh, we are here because somebody cared for us. Um, we as fathers are caring for other people. And we absolutely have to learn how to care for ourselves. And this is something that traditionally um, the construction of being a man doesn't tell us. It's like we protect others. But how can you protect others if your mental state is not fit enough to take care of your own situation in life? Um, so, so that's kind of the reflection and I am not coming down or I don't pretend to come down the mountain with the tables in my hand saying, this is the proclaimed truth about, no, this is just my experience, my reflections. And what I want to open is a space for others to have those conversations and, and reflect on that too and see like, okay, so what does it mean for the way in which I show up as a, as a father, as a partner, as a colleague, as a coworker, as a citizen, and what I'm demanding from myself and from others. It's funny because I think about you know, we're going to celebrate and even, even this, you know, this conversation is timed so that I can put it out and say, you know, this is a Father's Day conversation. And I, and I didn't want to make it about what I needed, because I think that's, that's the one thing that becomes obvious at the very beginning is that my needs come second at best. But I think that what I am learning is that there are so many other needs and I want to start with the last point that you made, the urgency of care. You, you talk a lot, and again, I want the, I'm going to have people uh, link to the piece about how, how hard that work is and how you don't always appreciate that. One of the things that I am keenly aware of, just being raised, and, and you mentioned a minute ago, raised in Colombia, uh, raised in the United States to, to parents who were Italian. Basically, they were the first uh, born generation immigrants. So, you know, I'm, I'm two generations away. But we're all, and, and, and tell me if this is different in, in the, the family of origin, the culture of origin for you, we're only one or two generations away from people who viewed men even holding their ch child as something that wouldn't be done until the, you know, the, the idea of holding a baby was antithetical to fatherhood not that long ago. And the idea that even something basic as not just caring, but just put it. And I think about, you couldn't rip my baby away from my arms if you tried to. And the idea that we have even come that far. So when we talk about care, it is physical, it is intimate, it is, and and it is so, but but our our values on it have changed so much, and that is disastrous for me in my perce perception for how recently and when we could talk about how this reflects all the other atrocities that are very recent in our history, whether it's and again talking about Jim Crow and you know everything else that's in this moment and very very present, but it also gives me an immense hope 
that if I can be the person who's more in touch with his feelings than my father was and his, his father was, then maybe for our sons, it will be better. And that is, is the first piece of hope that I have here. Because you talk about that care and how hard that work is. I feel like at least we're showing up. And I think that is the bare minimum. And as you write in the piece, we should not put ourselves on pedestals for doing just the bare minimum. So I, I, I agree with you in the sense of how things have changed, uh, generationally speaking. I, I can see my grandfather's and, and the, the memories of them, my, my own father and myself, and I can see stark differences in the sense of um, having the opportunity to be connected with our feelings and not feeling emasculated about it. And that's, and that's thanks to feminism. Yeah. Uh, like I was saying at the beginning, you say, do you want to, I mean, this is personal, this is political, this is professional. It's like, no, this is where, this is a, if, if today a man playing a um, caring roles in society from their house to their workplace to society, I don't think there is anything more political for us as men to do. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of men saying like, oh, yeah, we, we want to be part of feminism. We want to sit on the table. It's like, no, you you don't need that. You don't want that. You're not allowed that. You've had that soapbox for centuries. What you need to do is get the spaces in which you are, that you operate already already, and make them feminist. Yeah. Make those spaces feminist. Don't ask women to create spaces for you. Um, so, so on that is that the, the, the bar for men to show up is so low, so low, Jared, that when a man cooks, he's like, oh, you got to keep him. When a man <laughs> takes care of his children, he's like, oh, he's babysitting. He's like, no, he's parenting. So there is there is a component about the expectations are so low that when when us as, as men, as fathers, divert from that expectation, it seems like we're making magic. And it's like, but this is what you demand from women every single day moment of their lives when they're young when they're growing up when they uh, choose to become mothers or not and in any different positions when they're in an ad- office and everybody's expecting the women to organize the birthdays of everybody else is so so there is something about how the expect the expectations are, are so low and on, on the flip side of that is that you have all these um, elements of the culture that reinforced by policies. So why don't we have in this country paid maternity leave, paid parental leave? How is it possible that we say that the most important part of the human experience is to be at work instead of taking care of a human, another human? But our policies reflect that. So um, it is it is something about the way in which our daycare provision works. It is about or doesn't work for for, for for what it's worth, how our care for elderly works, right? So when we're talking about care, it's not only fathers. It's about the spectrum of care that happens in the lifespan of people. And the reality is that women brought the the burden of, of most of that. Well, and, and, and as you were saying, men men's expectation of care is so low, we're not even expected to take care of ourselves, whether it's mental health, physical health, whatever. It's the idea that we would even do that is radical. And again, showing you how low the bar has been set, right? Yeah. That that you live in a society where my needs should be taken care of by someone else, inclu- and, and they should also be taking care of their own needs and everyone else's needs. And so, so my, you know, just, just even men taking care of yourselves, 
is a, is a radical change. You know, again, how far away are we from men who don't just not cook for the people around them, but don't even cook for themselves, don't know how? Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, again, I think I think about these a lot in terms of generational. You know, I grew up in a restaurant family, so the men always cooked and actually they they preferred it. You know, mm-hmm. but, but then again, that even that was gendered. So, again, you know, it's it becomes a it, 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 the idea of caring for anybody, whether it's parents. And I know that, you you know, we're, we're all dealing with parents that are getting older. I've said to, to you know, Katie, my, my wife, over and over again, every day that we have is going to be the least complicated for the rest of our lives because our parents get older, our kids get older, our house gets older. You know, it's just everything is is going to become more difficult. And and by viewing it that way, I, I've I've saved myself a lot of stress and heartache, but it doesn't mean that. And it's not that I'm a pessimist. It's it's that I'm trying to enjoy each moment as it comes, and even that feels like a luxury most days. I'm sorry, you, but I interrupted you. You were you were talking about the 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 spectrum of care. No, no, no. And I, I think I think that your your comments are right on. And I would say that one of the things that it's really hard for me to think that we need to wait until men become fathers to have these realizations. Well, that's another, yeah, and, there's and, another and, problem. And that is, and that is absolutely not okay. Uh, specifically when we look at the, the amount, the, the daring situation and the amount of cases of domestic violence yeah. and violence against women perpetrated by men. If you look at the numbers during this uh, coronavirus pandemic around the world and in the U S it is just absolutely heartbreaking and at the same time it is it shows that it is as simple as me as men being unable to articulate their emotions in a way that doesn't imply violence is that in 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 cultures like like the u.s culture and in my own culture in colombia we're not allowed to express feelings that are beyond anger right or being horny and you're like (laughs) oh yeah he's horny oh yeah he's angry oh yeah that's that he's a man and he's like can i be nostalgic can i be frustrated can i be uh, but for men, and in the United States, we're also allowed to be patriotic. I think is the only other thing. That's the only <laughs> other emotion that we're allowed to express, and even that's plummeting, which is which is kind of amusing at this moment. When but I saw I saw the poll that was like the lowest uh, expression of patriot, you know, uh, feeling good. I, and I was in fifty years, and I was like, no shit. <laughs> of course, and that might mean, uh, Jared, that 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 patriot patriotism is linked with hypermasculinity. Yeah, and the traditional role of like I'm the man because I'm controlled and I'm stoic, and it's like. No, you're not. Uh, but but the, but the thing is, like you know, it's the ability to articulate feelings and being able to verbalize them. Uh, we impede that process for children, for boys when they're very little, because we tell them to man up, to don't cry, to don't do X, Y, and Z, because we try to put them in this men box, as Promundo in in the in the research um, called call these elements that shape what it means to be a, a man in a traditional sense of like protect, reproduce, and, and and provide. So there is an element there of like, I've been thinking a lot about violence against women and LGBTQI population and gender diverse people and how this is done by men, Yeah. right? So it's like, we try to say like, oh, those men are monsters. It's like, well, there's a lot of monsters in this, in this world then because one in three women experience gender-based violence by the hands of a man, usually a man at home or uh, uh, somebody who is close to them. And what I see that I think is revolutionary, it's not novel, but it's revolutionary, is that care is the, is the other side of violence, of gender-based violence. It's not, you don't have to, I mean, it's not the absence of violence. It's the 
pervasive presence of care. This is where it changes because it is really hard. It's such a higher calling. Yes, it is. But at the same time, it's like, this is what we're demanded to do. Or do you want to keep being the kind of madman type of person in life? Is that even sustainable possible? Not only with us, in our families, with ourselves, with the environment. It's like this care is not only about me and being the kind of uh, man I want to be. It's about how do we care for an environment in a system that is collapsing because we are uh, producing too much, consuming too much, and thinking that that's living. And we could have a whole separate conversation. And frankly, I think you and I ought to, maybe in just a personal conversation about how the capitalist society that we are in encourages us to be monsters in every way that you just described. It, it, it encourages us to overconsume. It, it encourages us to be brusque with our fellow person. It encourages us to view value only in dollar signs. And that is terrible for everything, but especially on that spectrum of violence to caring. You know, I talk about on this conversation over and over again that if you don't show that you give a damn about the other people in your life, they're going to know it. And it reflects in your politics because your neighbors are going to know that you don't care about them. The people in your family are going to know. And everyone that you come in contact with is going to, you can't hide it forever. And it's unfortunate that our system respects and values so much and and especially that masculine version of not giving a shit so much that then we we see someone you know like the, the people who succeed in our political system almost entirely epitomizing those values that that you and I are are fighting so hard against the idea of being crass and not caring and and throwing that's just what's that's just the the phenotype that's just what's shown let alone the the damaging um, genetic code underneath that, that produces that kind of uh, monstrosity. And, and, and when we say caring, is um, it's not only caring for those of us, of our families that, that we have some feelings about. It's to say, you know, I care about the, the, the George Floyds in the world. Yeah. I care about the black trans lives because those lives matter and are as precious as my, as my life. But in the system of exclusion and othering, they're not seen as valuable. And, and care means that I have to care for them too, that I have to act upon that care too, that, um, that each of us has to find a way to do it. But that comes with the humbling element of listening and not knowing that we, and knowing that we don't have all the answers. And as men, we're socialized to think, to believe that we have all the answers, that we're the ones commanding and saying how things go, and not to listen. And listening and being empathetic are sold or shared or seen as soft skills, like the, the dichotomy, or like you're soft, therefore you might be not masculine enough. Right. And it's like, uh, well, this, this is the kind of constructions that has brought us here, and this is <clears throat> funded strongly on, on patriarchy, right? On that, that domination of, of men over others and that's sustained by capitalism. It's like you cannot link uh, the, system, the economic system that we live in under this uh, pervasive force of trying to impose a view of seeing and being in the world that is exclusive, that is against human rights, and that is violent. Yeah. I mean, the experiences of growing up in, in this country uh, and that experience based on the color of your skin is violent. And I don't want to say that white boys growing up in this country have it easier either. They experience like bullying, 
uh, exclusion based on class, where you're born. So uh, there is there is something to be said about how we finding care a way of humanizing each other. And I, I think that you start at home. Is that you can't start somewhere else. You have some money to donate, go put it where you think the value is, you know, places that provide services for uh, transgender folks like Casa yeah. Rubin, Washington, D.C. or Black Lives Matter. Wherever you find that you can put your money in. But if you're unable to see that care and speak up at your own house with your own family, then that's, that's, that, that's a change that is, that is not complete. It has to be whole to be true. So we both have sons. And as and I think there's an additional burden, and maybe you disagree, but I think there's an additional burden because we're both partners to cis women. They, we come to this moment of being fathers with a lifetime of experience being raised a boy. So we have this this built-in template, and as you point out, filled with errors. How do you, as a father to a son, how do you make sure? And he's obviously. A little bit older he's he's two and my son uh is he's only he's not even five months old you've already i'm sure thought about this how are you making sure that you live these values and and model these I, values I think that that's, in that's such a way that is perceptible I to your son think about a lot especially in a, in a in a bicultural home as 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 my partner is from from the u.s and so I might have had a lot of experiences of what it means to grow up as a man in a country like Colombia. And at the same time, I lack in so many ways the understanding of how to, how to name those experiences. And in those, in those regards, my partner is my Sherpa in helping me articulate that with her immense emotional intelligence and her, her graciousness to create a space for me to explore that. Because it takes a time. It takes a t- it takes a lot of time to explore that and articulate things. I remember uh, when we were dating and we didn't have a, ch- a child yet. Uh, sometimes I'll come to say to say and uh, to her and say, you know, I'm really mad at you, and I don't know why, but I'm mad. I need like two hours to come up with the answer because I didn't have the language to interpret what I was feeling. Can you imagine pretending to raise <laughs> another person without having? a minimum understanding of yourself. And now I'm able to say like, you know what? What you said was hurtful. And 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 I think it was because of X, Y, and Z. Or but she gave me a lot of that space. And it's the same from the trivial and and the deep, right? From the trivial is like I was useless until I was 23 years old. I grew up in a household where my mom didn't allow me to do anything. It was disrespectful for me to try to do something related to housework. And you know, in a, in an equal relationship in a country like theirs, you have to you have to step up your game. And I didn't know how to cook, I didn't know how to clean, and I'm I feel very proud about the things that I'm able to do now. But also, it's to say I need to raise a functional, a functioning adult, a functioning human being who's able to care for themselves and to care for others. It's that's it. So so it does. I think that my experience as a as a cisgender man heterosexual informs, as a migrant, informs a lot of those things. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what care is. I'm learning about this. And my mom, um, my partner, my grandmother, the women in my life have taught me a lot from that. And I learned from them a lot. How do we make sure that it's intersectional? Neither of us is black. How do we make sure that we are centering those experiences and centering those 
needs for a young, like, how do you make sure? Because you're not black, your partner's not black, I'm not black, my partner's not black, and yet we see that the the black people in our lives are suffering so much more. How do we make sure that we're aware of that? And how do we make sure that we are making that part of what we're doing as dads? Maybe that's the wrong question, but I just, I, it's been the question that's been rattling around in my head. I, I feel like in this country, and I've been here for 10 years, so um, take, take with a grain of salt what I'm going to say. There has been a lot of narratives created about the absence, the absence of black fathers. Um, and, I, and I think that that fits into um, a different kind of narrative about black people in this country. And, and I, I, I don't think that that's fair. I think that actually yeah. um, the, the black men I, I have in my life that, I, that are fathers, I see um, how they are present and willing and able to be for the children. And what I could say is that the intersectional uh, understanding of this is important in the way in which people like us that we're not black, but we're fathers, that we are heterosexual men, um, that we understand that uh, sexual orientation and gender diversity is something we um, we care for and that we create space for, is that on the one hand is that we acknowledge them and we and we create a space for their voices to be heard. And it's not to ask them to educate us, it's to create the space in our own spaces to hear those voices. So if you're at a workplace, can you get money to bring somebody to speak about these issues? Can you get resources to do that? Uh, check in with people. How are you doing? How can I be of support in this moment? So we, we, we tend to think that we need to do the big splash to make a difference. And it is yeah. not. It's to, it's to show up. But that show up is not a one-time engagement because that's not care. That's something you do to make yourself feel better. And if you want to make yourself feel better, then that's okay too. But know that you're not getting... You're going into that low bar of what is expected from you. So if you are a man and you're like, yeah, I'm all against violence against women, but you don't go to the marches, you don't support sexual health and reproductive rights for women, uh, you're, you're not doing your part. If you're white or you're non-black and you say like, oh, yeah, I care about that, but you know what? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with their way of doing things. It's like, well, you're not, and you're not one to come and say how they're doing or not doing things because you're not able to. Uh, feel the way in which this oppressed them and has oppressed them. But empathy is what allows you and opens the door for you to say that the different intersections of who we are and how they manifest in, in our experiences um, help us to understand the, the other people and then use care as a way of saying, okay, so how do I uh, engage in this conversation in a way that is sustained and is not instrumentalized or is not to show that I'm woke and the rest of the people are not? I want to acknowledge something that you said that made me uncomfortable because I feel like these are moments that I should, I should embrace them and try to learn from them. I said something about being father and you said something about correcting the perception about black men and fatherhood. And my instinct was to jump in and correct you and say, but I wasn't saying that. I'm mentioning this now because I think as a reporter, even just a couple years ago, I would have jumped in and done that. And I'm glad that I didn't because it's not about me and my comfort. It's about making sure that somebody who's listening, who's either black or white or anything else, and heard that even now I'm struggling with the fact that I might have come across and said that, but I'm going to live with that discomfort. And I want to ask you two more questions. 
please. Can I, can I say something about that, Jared? Because I think it's very important, which is, like I said, I've been living in this country for 10 years, and I feel like I have a part of me that is very Latino and a very part that is very American. And it's not like a it's not like a layer cake. It's like a marble cake. <laughs> so sometimes I, I can't trace where I end and where I start as in in those two in that dichotomy. And and something that I think that Americans have a very hard, especially people that are privileged, right? So white, yeah. cisgender, middle class, urban people, is that they don't like to feel uncomfortable. When when something happens that triggers something in them that confronts them with uh a truth that they don't want to hear. And and I am taking, I'm not putting that on you, but taking the, the advantage of the space you're open for that is it is really hard to rebuke that and ignore it, but it's very difficult to sit in that uncomfortableness yeah. Yeah. and look at it and sense it and feel it. Like it's like when you look at the four to the eight, 48 minutes and four in 46 seconds of the George Floyd killing, right? It's like, you know how it's going to end. Are you putting yourself through through all those minutes? And you say it this makes me really uncomfortable. Yes, but you're not the one who has a knee on your neck. Yeah. So sit with it. Right. So it can foster the kind of reaction that you need in order to move you. So I think that for all of us, because we all have those moments. I have a lot of moments in which I feel extremely uncomfortable. And I try to remember that it is an important educational experience, a moment that somebody else is giving me. Yeah, And just because I can think that that person is wrong, that that's, those are not the facts, that doesn't change their experience. And they're ter- trying to tell me something. Sometimes it's not the number they're quoting, it's the pain behind the, behind the experience of that number. And that is so powerful to me because it just helped me link and relate to that person at the human level of like, I am sorry you have had to experience that. And I'm here to listen to you and try to find ways to be your ally, to support yeah. you or to support each other or to say thank you for taking the opportunity to educate me into something that I'm an ignorant on. Well, and, and, and it's frankly, it's easier in my seat, you know, the, to either go on to the next question and ignore it or to correct you and edit it later. But I'm going to do neither of those things, and I'm just going to sit here and be uncomfortable. And even more, I'm going to communicate that to you, and I'm going to leave it open for you to say everything that you just said. And I'm glad that I did, because it's, I think it's better. And I think, let, let me get to one way that we all don't sit with our discomfort. And it's a thing that you mentioned earlier about the ability to be present, And I think about this, my son at four and a half months already looks at the phone when I look at the phone. And I think it's very tempting in this quarantine, self-isolation, whatever moment to doom scroll and to have some comfort, some palliative care to ourselves to kind of look through. And, you know, we're both people who traffic in information. We live in a, in a plugged in society. We care about what's going on. And that's a great excuse, but I'm already finding that, that shame when, when he looks at the phone, because I'm looking at the phone and I'm not looking at him. And so I want to talk a little bit about that point. Cause you mentioned that at the beginning of this conversation and I wrote it down and I said, I'm so guilty of this. And I know it's only going to get harder as he gets older. And so as someone who's a little over a year and a half ahead of me on this, on this uh, race, how are you doing? 
how what what are some best practices that I can take into into advisement here? So, so the first thing I would say is that I'm failing at it. Um, <laughs> it's hard. I take it day by day. Uh, sometimes I am really good and then try to do things like have a system by which I have an old iPod that plays the music, so I don't have an excuse to do it on my phone. Oh, that's um, glorious. Um, uh, we have decided to don't allow our phones in the bathroom. So when we charge them up at night, they're outside. Um, I've tried to uh, have like no f- phone hours. So trying to be between eight and eight, not to look at the phone. Um, but it is really hard because we get bored and especially us that are very used to, because we're working with computers, phones all the time. We're so used to the stimulation that even when we're bored, it, we automatically grab the phone and we don't notice, but they notice. And, right. they, and it is... It is, it is extremely hard for us. One of the things that we decided early on in our relationship was not to have a TV at home. So so we we don't have a TV, which is less a screen. But at the same time, I can see, especially for, for people who are raising children on their own, specifically moms, it's like there's so much judgment about kids watching TV. And it's like, do you know how, 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 how hard it is to be raising a child on your own and having five minutes to shower or to eat or to prep? Or, it's like, so I, I think that we need to be a little less hard on that because sometimes I feel like 20 years ago, being connected was the privilege and being disconnected right. was it. And now it's the other way around. It's like, I yeah. connect yeah. because I'm privileged. So it's like, there is something there about the class and privilege situations. But I think that like not having a TV is a choice. And it's hard, but it's a choice. So, so, but at the same time, it's like sometimes you just have to use the phone because you need it. Sometimes, if you're in a situation in which you know a, a TV show is going to help you to be a better parent, and you need five minutes off, that's absolutely okay. Just yeah, give your child the phone, put him to watch a video of a cute toucan flying, <laughs> and take five minutes. That's absolutely okay. Um, I think that is the awareness of that. Is the self-reflection of saying like, what is this? Why am I doing this? And what what is the effect it's having on my children? I think that that's it's it's is the is the the nugget there. It's definitely something that I I know that I'm going to fail at because I've already I've seen it have bad implications in my relationships, friendships, my romantic relationship with my partner. Like every ass, it's it's it universally makes all the other things worse, and yet I can't quit it. So it's it's definitely something that I need to uh, to get better on. And I'm glad that you don't have the answer because sometimes it's nice to know that somebody else who's been thinking about this uh, in a very deliberate uh, and, you know, professional way uh, as, as your your role. You know, it's, it's your job in addition to something you just care a lot about. Um, I'm glad that you don't have the answer. That makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, we're in this together, Jared. It's, there's, there's, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's like I've tried to pull my phone away. I've taken a week off, a day off. It's, I've tried different things, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I, I love what you said at the beginning, because one of the things um, about not blending the personal and professional, first of all, I think is, is bullshit. And second of all, I think it's an enormous amount of privilege to pretend. I don't think anyone actually does it, but I think that the people who say that they do, and this is this is endemic in reporters and reporting and newsrooms everywhere, and it's usually the white people who, who the privileged and wealthier people who, and I think about this, um, I and I bought into it, which is the crazy thing, is, is you know, saying, you know, oh, reporters shouldn't vote on races that they might uh, be reporting on or stuff. I really bought into all that, and I think it's an enormous position of privilege. Uh, you mentioned one other thing about the patriarchal voice. I'm going to point people back 
to the piece because you say it there better than I could. Needless to say, I think that you are very adept at recognizing it. And I think that in addition to listening to everyone else in our lives, we do better if we listen to ourselves. Let me just ask you a, a sillier question, which is, I know that, and it's something that I've been asking a lot of people, but I think that it's important to be human. It's important to just acknowledge that we're all, you know, flesh beings that exist in this world in this moment. I know it's difficult in a lot of ways, but it's a silly question that I've been asking a lot of people, you know, as I've mentioned, my background's in food. And I know that we're all grateful for the opportunities that we have and the food that we have. And you and I are experiencing essentially white collar quarantine self-isolation, which is easier. But there's got to be something. And I imagine that you, you mentioned multicultural home. You and your partner may have different answers to this, but I want to know yours. What is the thing that you are looking forward to least eating in your home right now? If you couldn't go out to the, to the store and you couldn't get more. Is there something either in your pantry or your freezer or somewhere that you're like, that would be the thing I would eat last? I would eat last. I know it's a silly question, but forgive me. No, 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 no. It's, I mean, food is such a central way of caring, right? It's, yes. It's, 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 how we, it's how we understand the world. It's how we do, I mean, politics, diplomacy. Um, it's, it's around, it's, yeah, it's everywhere. I would say... If I would have to save one thing that I would eat last because I know I won't get, it would be a piece of mango, right? And and I would say a piece of mango because I, when I was in Colombia, I spent many, many, many summers um, in my grandma's house in a small town three hours away from Bogota where there was a huge, huge mango tree that used to wake me up in the middle of the night because the breeze would make the mangoes fall in the zinc uh, roof and it would scare the crap out of me and I would up to three in the morning for the cat. And I just have this, you know, this vivid memory of being a child sitting on the cold floor of my grandma's house at, you know, 90 degrees outside on the shade and just eating mango and getting mango dripping on my hands and in my teeth and not having flaws or not knowing what flaws was at that point because I was too little. So it just has such a warm memory for me. And, and for our child, one of the things we did is that we paint a mango tree on his room. So when he wakes up, he sees the mangoes. Huh. So it has such a, a, a taste for for childhood, for family, for, you know, a place where I come from that is loving and magical and horrible at the same time. So yeah, that will be. You know, it's funny. I, I have to point this out because if people haven't heard the other conversations where I've asked this, everyone else took it and said the thing they were looking least forward to, the thing that they would have saved to the end because they didn't want to eat it. And I love Love, I, I love you in so many ways, but I love the fact that you took the question and said the thing that you would save for the last because you were excited about it. Um, for people who don't get to be Sebastian's friend, he is like this all the time. And it's one of the things that uh, makes me, it, 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 it has a permanent smile on my face as we've been having this conversation. And I hope that it has brought one to you as well, because it is a reminder that the, uh, that there's another way to look at things and, and uh, it's, it's, it brings a lot of joy. Um, and, and, and that's really how I wanted to end is just to say that, um, I've, this was a nice excuse, but I haven't reached out as much. And obviously we've been dealing with, uh, a newborn and everything else, but it's a nice, it's nice to hear your voice. Um, and I just, I love you. I love your family and I can't wait to see you all again soon. And I hope that it, uh, 
that th- these these next few whatevers, however long this lasts, uh, treats you as easily as possible. Thank you, Jared. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you, with the people that listen to the things you have to say, because I think that they would find in, in, in your ability to ask curious questions, uh, answers to things that they haven't think about. Um, uh, I love you. I love your family. I'm so happy we're in each other's lives. And I hope that soon we're able to be each other physically and, and see each other and, and share a meal because I've been looking forward to to try some of the Italian food you make. I haven't had the chance and I really look forward to it. It's, yeah. Likewise for, uh, you know, well, I mean, obviously, as you already admitted, you didn't learn as a child. So it's when you go back, do you like like retroactively learn Colombian food or, or have you, like what's the, what's on your palate or what's on the, uh, what's on the menu for, for your family at this point? Like when you're, when you're cooking, what do you cook? So, uh, my, my son loves beans. So it's a lot of beans and rice and we don't have fried, sweet fried plantains accessible these days. So we mask, we mask <sighs> them with, uh, baked carrots or sweet potato. That, 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 that does it. the trick. Uh, and then, you know, the, the mangoes, the fruits, it's, that's the, the, the availability of fruits of pineapple. That's what makes us, you know, kind of like have home in home here in Boston. It's raining here in DC as we're having this conversation. So the, the bright sunshine that you bring is traveling through and, and brightening up even this very gray day in Washington. Uh, the, the, we're, we're worse off for having you, uh, not here, but I know that you guys are very much enjoying Boston and, uh, and I hope that we get to see each other at least uh, virtually very soon. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thank you. Once again, Sebastian Milano, founder of Defying Gender Roles. I will make sure that the recent piece he put up and their general website is in the description of this episode. He's also a senior gender advisor for Oxfam America based out of Boston and a great friend.